So, good news and bad news. I love it. Good news is, apparently, there's some socialism and communism happening in America. What? <laughs> I, I'm skeptical. The bad news is someone wants to stop it. What's their problem? It's just, it barely got started, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if we haven't heard of it, like, we would be there. <laughs> yeah, and we're already going to call it quits. Apparently. So I am, of course, referencing the road signs we both saw on our recent trip to East Texas. <laughs> yeah, they had some good ones there. Uh, one was, stop the, stop the NEA agenda? Yes. Uh, and, or stop communism, stop socialism, something like that. Yeah. So when all of these signs, they have a headline that says stop something. And then the, the second line is end socialism slash communism. Well, they need to go back and listen to our first episode. Uh, learn about the differences between yeah. socialism and communism. Goodness. Yeah. They couldn't even afford to do their research. Wow. Do your homework. So apparently the way to stop socialism slash communism Again, not the same thing, uh, is to stop the NEA agenda. Uh, that was one. Stop slavery, which I'm for stopping slavery. Yeah. Yeah. The <laughs> It's a strange overlap of forces who want to <laughs> do socialism slash communism, but, you know, do some slavery. <laughs> you know, you know, those slaving communists. Yeah. <laughs> And finally, they're coming after you with this one. Stop Marxist teachers. Whoa. Hey, I may be a Marxist and a teacher. Does that, so does that make me a Marxist teacher? Yeah. I don't or, know if they mean like active or <laughs> actively proselytizing. Yeah. You're currently teaching Marxism. Mm, you just happen to be Marxist. No, nah, I bet they, I bet they mean the other one. Probably. <laughs> Probably both. Honestly. <laughs> one is, yeah. One's obviously the ultimate bad, but if. If you're the other one, if you just happen to be a Marxist, that's still also bad. They don't trust you. Yeah. They don't trust you not to teach it accidentally. Which, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's kind of a backhanded compliment. Because it's like, well, thank you for believing that I'm like, that I am an effective enough teacher to like, <laughs> teach your kids these things. You know, Convert because half the, the time masses. they're like, yeah, half the time they're like, oh, you guys, you know, teachers can't teach for anything. They don't do anything. They're glorified babysitters. But... We're good enough to indoctrinate everyone, so... Hmm? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we're going to teach people on purpose here today. That's the goal, anyway. Uh, today, we are going to learn about... We're kind of broadening the scope from our initial topic, but what we mentioned is going to be a part of what we're talking about today, and that is agroecology in Cuba. I suppose we should start with the definition... What is agroecology? Is it growing stuff in a way that works with the environment and not against it? Yeah, 100%. Hell yeah. Nailed it. Ding, ding, ding. I don't even need to be here. Bye. You just talk to the audience. <laughs> I already know this. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. They just check out. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that's the simple definition I'm going with it. You know, it kind of can branch and stuff, but like using ecological principles to guide agricultural practices. And in Cuba, they're doing a lot of this, but they didn't always. And so that's where I want to kind of start the story. We already know kind of some of the history of Cuba, right? Yeah. What was it like pre-revolution? 
Um, it was really bad, and um, everyone was on those latifundias, and it was a monoculture of just sugar, and so people couldn't afford to like feed themselves. And yeah, that that's my summary. That's a perfect summary. Hell yeah! First, by the Spanish, and then by kind of secondhand the United States. Not like a direct Euro colony, but like the corporations. Yeah, um, by the 1920s, Cuba was doing this sugar monoculture, or like continuing to do so from their old Spanish days. By then, they produced a fifth of the world's sugar, and U.S. companies controlled more than 70% of that. Wow. Side note, do you think one of the reasons we pivoted so hard to corn sweeteners, like corn syrup, is like we didn't want Cuban sugar? (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, I guess that could play a role. I thought it was just more that the corn lobby was, you know, there's more domestic corn production than sugar production. So Yeah, I guess that's what I mean by that. I mean, we've talked about that, I guess, in our our food episode. But yeah, we're very into corn here. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The relationship between the U.S. and, and Cuba was such that the trade deals always favored the U.S. and purposefully kept Cuba underdeveloped and dependent on U.S. imports and exports. And during that time, there's this increasingly uh, vast disparity between the the rich, opulent playground uh, for the tourists and everything in in Havana and the cities, and then the the desperately poor countryside, like you said, the latifundias and all that. So yeah, that's all leading up to the revolution then 1959 happens, blam. You got the Cuban Revolution, all the cool guys taking over, liberating the people, and doing their good shit. You know, we're not going to focus on all of it, but you know, nationalizing stuff, literacy campaigns, more healthcare, education, housing, anti poverty stuff, banning import of luxury goods, like can't fly in your fancy, you know, gold watches and shit like that. Uh, Basically, they saw profits as, uh, you know, first of all, people shouldn't be amassing those sorts of profits to just like fuck away like that. But also, if they do, those should be put to a social use rather than wasted on ridiculous things. Yeah, I mean, agreed. With all these things, of course, came your personal favorite Land reform. Yeah. Uh, So this was actually put together by Che Guevara. Fuck yeah. That's my guy. It limited the size of farms. And then it nationalized and redistributed that surplus land uh, to peasants. And initially they banned foreign ownership of sugar farms. This is what we're going to start focusing on is the agriculture side of it. Uh, Where did they go from there? So... With all this land, they started setting up state-run farms, and then they started encouraging cooperative farms with all the land that they had distributed to the peasants. In Cuba today, they have different forms of all this, so they do have state-run farms. They have what are called CPAs and UBPCs. These are acronyms you don't really need to know, but they're like types of cooperative farms that are very similar to each other. There are some differences, but I couldn't really... Mm, tell us more of a historic thing like like when was the law that created that sort of type of cooperative you know they changed the name sort of 
And they also still have some private farms, which like, remember we said that they set a cap, but like some people still, you know, they, they had their small farm and they stayed doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't like every single person got their land taken away. Right. Yeah. And that's still to this day, they still have private farms out there. Initially, they tried to kind of diversify out of the sugar monoculture a little bit. Uh, but this was really hard to do, especially with, with not very much in terms of equipment. Uh, they quickly found that it was going to be an easier road to develop the country overall if they went back to the sugar monoculture and focused on developing it to export to socialist countries. Interesting. Because so we know from our food episodes that monocultures in general are very bad for your soil. Yeah, um, they were able to pull this off kind of at the expense of their soil long term uh, using the advances of the Green Revolution, of all this like agriculture technology and stuff that was coming out at that time. So they were able to like pump it with chemical fertilizers and pesticides with, uh, you know, industrializing machinery, big, huge tractor combines, stuff like that. And they, they really went hard at it. By the 1980s, they were using more fertilizer proportionally than the U.S. And Holy shit. Yeah. And they were the most uh, heavily fertilized, I guess, uh, country in Latin America, heavy <laughs> users of it. Weird term. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how to put it, but they were using a lot of fertilizer. Okay. 90% <laughs> of that fertilizer and pesticides, those were imported. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's over 1.3 million tons. And, and so this was kind of what how they were you know, juicing their sugar monoculture agriculture program. So some people like to criticize and say, oh, well, they just went from one master to the other. You know, they went from serving the U.S. to serving the Soviet Union. And I don't know, from what I was reading, it seems like it's a different arrangement. I mean, you do have them like raising agriculture for export. But one, we covered how vastly different the ownership structure of that agricultural land was by this point. It's like not exploitative because it's run by the people either directly or through the state. And I'm willing to bet that like the Soviet Union cut better deals with them than the U.S. would. That is also true. So this was more of like a mutually beneficial, a mutual aid sort of situation than a colonial one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It also wasn't really meant to be permanent. It was seen as a means to an end, the end being to industrialize Cuba and gain self-sufficiency. It wasn't like, hey, let's trap these guys in producing sugar all for the rest of their you know, existence. Yeah, yeah, we're now completely subservient, not that kind of thing. Right. So that's what they were doing for a while until the Soviet Union collapsed. Whoops. Bummer. Yeah, and so with the Soviet Union's collapse comes what's known in Cuban history as the Special Period. Okay, what does that mean? So the special period, uh, its time frame is from the fall of the Soviet Union, basically till 2000. It starts easing up a little bit in like the late 90s when the Bolivarian Revolution happens in Venezuela and like Hugo Chavez uh, rises to power and he's like more of a friendly government because he's like more leftist. And then in 2000, once they get better trade relations, uh, once, well... Once Putin comes into power. Mm. Uh, but, hey, they were happy to take any trading partner, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So the special period uh, was marked by food shortages, well, really shortages of everything. Uh, GDP shrank by 35%. Imports and exports by 80%. Oh, gosh. Agricultural production fell by 54%. Uh, and, and caloric intake, which, you know, your modern society of plenty might be like, <laughs> oh, maybe everyone's just being health conscious or dieting or something. <laughs> this is like not what we're talking about. This no. is falling from... 2,600 a person to around 1,000 Holy a person shit. by 1993. Yeah, yeah, that's not great. So they had to basically like quickly figure out how to become self-sufficient after the fall. Yeah, and this is a time faced with such a drastic situation. Any capitalist country is going to be doing savage austerity. Mm-hmm. Like, just completely gutting any sort of protections it had for its people. You know, going to be basically turning toward fascism. Like, really bad shit. Yes, yes. Selling off public land and public uh, utilities, all that shit. Yeah. Whereas Cuba, faced with this situation, did do austerity. But here's how they did it. They eliminated 15 of their government ministries. They cut defense spending by 86%. (laughs) okay imagine that yeah can you we i can't imagine cutting it by five percent in this country (laughs) (laughs) i can't imagine not raising it by five percent yeah for real even when not asked yep (laughs) but they increase spending on welfare social services and health care the share of gdp on health care went up 13 percent and by welfare went up 29 percent that's amazing holy cow so they were looking out for people. You know? Yeah. But basically, change, like you said, change had to happen and happen fast. So this is where agroecology came to the rescue. All right. What'd they do? So it seems like it comes out of left field or out of pure desperation. They just threw something together and, and hoped it worked. But actually, these strategies, these like kind of green farming organic techniques had already been developed theoretically and kind of practiced on and stuff, even as early as like the late 70s, early 80s. In Cuba, they had already been thinking about this and developing it through their Department of Defense uh, because it was like a preparation for the possibility of the intensification of, you know, the United States' barbaric siege of that country. Okay, yeah, that's... A great point, because I was thinking when you're like, well, they focus on the monoculture and I'm like, man, they relate like that seems like a dangerous play, because like if you get rid of your one big ally, you are fucked. And it sounds like they were, but not as fucked as they could have been. Right. Because they, you know, someone had that uh, your same idea. <laughs> yeah. Years before I was like, well, uh, <laughs> maybe we should have a plan B. Right. And it wasn't I don't think really they were preparing for the Soviet Union to fall so much as. For getting, you know, yeah, for having the U.S.'s grip around their neck tightened. Some fuckery. Yeah. They have this stuff ready to roll, so they roll it out. What this entails, for one, is repurposing urban lands for collective farming. Hell yeah, this is some Kropotkin shit. Yeah, very much so. It, it, it reads like that. Havana converted 135 square miles to agriculture. For our New York listeners, it's the equivalent of six Manhattans. Holy shit. Yeah, that's a lot. (laughs) 
1995, Havana had 25,000 small group or family farms and dozens of kind of larger collective farms uh, called Organoponicos, which this was our original episode topic here. But this, I found, was kind of part of the whole scene. Uh, Organoponicos are like these organic urban farms, uh, or you can think of them as very large gardens because of kind of how they're structured <coughs> or how they're built. You know, um, like people who have backyard far, uh, farms or backyard gardens, shall we say, a lot of times one of the common techniques here is like raised flower beds and stuff or raised garden beds. Yeah, like plots. Yeah, uh, that's kind of what we're talking about here. So they would have these long, you know, uh, garden beds there with, this organic substrate to plant the plants in and you would run uh and they run like watering lines over the top of them that's kind of what they got set up so you know it very much is like a vegetable garden just big (laughs) okay so not so much like greenhouse more regular garden they do also have greenhouse types like i don't know if it's particularly greenhouse but i saw pictures of like a kind of a half circle sort Mm, of arch over the whole thing Okay, okay. But it was like clear, you know, so I guess that's a greenhouse. So maybe just like seasonally. Yeah. There was this also this guy who did like a, like just a pure like herbs one. So his was like a smaller situation, but he was doing like hydroponic stuff. Ooh, that's very cool. So there's all sorts of different applications. It's not uniform, right? And this is very much like a people's sort of initiative thing. And in its earliest days, it really started that way. It, a, a lot of the people were kind of kerpotkinning it of like, oh, fuck, we got to grow stuff, you know, and they were just repurposing this. And the government was saying, huh, you want to do what with a vacant? Uh, fine, that's fine. <laughs> Actually, yeah, that'd be great. Please feed and yourselves. Then somebody comes over from the department and like, hey, we got plans for this. We can actually go out and and teach people techniques that we've developed and make sure that this stuff actually like, you know, kind of hit the gas on this. Uh, yeah, I love that because, I mean, it makes sense. And this is a like something I'd heard about kind of late Soviet Union too, is that a lot of people did have personal gardens to like supplement their food income. So, I mean, I, I like that, you know, the government didn't say like, shut it down, we're building our own. They said like, let's add to that. Yeah, yeah. Following that trend by 2008, 3.4% of urban land in the country and 8% of the land in Havana were turned into... Uh, were repurposed into farming land. Nice. Like I said, this entails introducing organic farming methods. Largely, you know, this was the plan from the beginning was, hey, what if we don't have access to outside fertilizers and pesticides and stuff? Mm-hmm. And now they don't have that anymore. <laughs> uh, so this was this was a big part of it was what to, how to how to replace that. And they had developed these means. And so the Ministry of Agriculture was trying to put out the best practices for organic farming uh, and publishing that, you know, PSA stuff and pamphlets and things like that. You know, Cotty would love this part of it, <laughs> the pamphlet part. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my D&D character loves a pamphlet. <laughs> <laughs> they also granted long-term, long-term leases to people, land leases, uh, for real cheap, you know, but like kind of uh, what they called usufruct, which is like, Technically, the government's still loaning you the land, uh, but you have use of or you own the means of production on it. So they can't just kick you out. 
Okay, so like you're you're in charge of like running the the agriculture stuff on there. Yeah. Some of the methods that they were putting out include biological pest control, uh, like mm, as a replacement for pesticides, sort of is like different bugs that eat the yeah. bugs you don't like. You know exactly. Uh, they describe some of these organoponicos as like growing, like or like uh like raising sort of. They would have beds dedicated to like raising these worms that would Ew. protect their their plants and stuff. Cool. Would not want to be on worm <laughs> duty, but. I mean, it's good. <laughs> you got the worm latrine today. Oh, no. <laughs> Biofertilizers, um, feeding, they fed their livestock uh, legumes instead of like different types of grains, I guess, since they couldn't import that as easily. And a lot of times they were raising like livestock, like cattle and stuff, mostly for production of fertilizer and compost and stuff. Yeah, apparently. They still, you know, obviously consumed its meat at some point. They weren't trying to be like no animals, but I think that that was maybe more convenient of a use for them. Yeah, yeah. Or cheaper. Uh, this overall effort uh, also included using traditional techniques, uh, kind of hearkening back, going away from industrial agriculture and back toward mixed farming, uh, crop rotation, these things that people have known for thousands of years hell yeah you know and, and saying like hey you know our ancestors and shit they knew what they were doing yeah yeah that's so cool overall efforts here resulted in 95 percent reduction of chemical pesticides for one holy shit because remember they're barely getting any so <laughs> that was a big effort to, to to make it to to that point state also kind of facilitated like okay this is how we're going to help you set up but they also facilitated like with uh, they started kind of legalizing uh, small like farmers markets to where these cooperatives and stuff could sell really locally. They would get to keep like half the profit. So your cooperative or whatever, you'd set it up, you know, and, and you'd sell your shit and like the government would get half of it. But then the other half would be up to distribute between the workers in that cooperative. Interesting. Okay. Also during this time, they were really, really pushing forward on transitioning from the state run farms to cooperatives, those UBPCs. Yeah. They redistributed a bunch of land to them. More than half of the state owned farmland gets redistributed to them uh, so that they can kind of start building up this urban organic farm network. Interesting. Okay, so I'm assuming that's just because the state runs ones were so much more industrialized and, and dependent on those fertilizers and stuff like that. Yes, that's correct. Okay, cool. So they were like, we, you know, we can't really scale it up to that level yet. So we're going to start, you know, divvying this up basically. And you guys start doing what you can. And we'll try to help you, you know. Interesting. Okay, so I have a question. Um, it's kind of a flavor question. <laughs> <laughs> so try to paint me a picture of like what this looks like is it like i'm a full-time farmer or is it like i have a job and then i come home and i work in the garden or is it a mix or like how does that work mm, i think maybe some people are doing the latter but for most people it's being a farmer okay okay cool you would just go be, yeah you would go be a farmer in that regard uh but i'm sure some people were side gigging it too by 1995 
about a fifth of agricultural products uh, produced in Cuba were from farmer or uh, from farmers markets. It's interesting because one of the side effects to this that ends up being a real boon to not just the farmers but the people living around them uh, is that it drastically brings down the price of food in cities. Mm, yeah, because it's closer. Yeah, transportation costs are basically nothing. They were, they were interviewing this guy, and he was selling, like, eggplants or whatever. And he was like, this is a peso. Like, <laughs> oh, my if, God. If you buy this down at the, you know, at the actual grocery store, like the state distribution center or whatever, it's going to be five pesos because they had to transport it there. Mm-hmm. But this is like, I, ju- I, th- I picked this over there. Like, he just points <laughs> to it, you know. That's so cool. And this is a huge difference because people are making there at that time like 700 pesos a month as an average income. It's not anything to sneeze at. Now you say, oh, four pesos, whatever, but it's a big deal. So overall, this has had the effect of increasing domestic food production and reducing foreign food imports in Cuba uh, by a lot. Uh, One thing that they still have is food imports uh, and people kind of point and say, well, you're still importing food. Most of that goes to the uh, tourism sector. <laughs> it's for the white people. <laughs> yeah. So okay. it's, it's not mostly for domestic consumption. I'm sure some of it is there. But over half of the fruits and vegetables consumed in Havana uh, were produced there by the early 2000s. That's also when they fully recovered their calorie intake from the special period. You saw a 1,200% increase uh, in the production of vegetables in Havana to where by 2013 uh, they were producing uh, Havana was producing like 60,000 tons of vegetables and 1700 tons of meat. Wow. I'm wondering like if there were also like health benefits of like, you know, your air has more oxygen and like you're eating more fresh produce like on a regular basis. Like that's got to be really good for you. Oh, yeah. By 2013, Cuba was consuming more vegetables per capita than the world average, uh, more than the U.S., more than the rest of the Americas. That's impressive. Yeah. Uh, so definitely, I think it would have those those benefits of having a more well-balanced, well-rounded dietary intake, you know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, this was, I don't know, a huge success, it looks like. By 2006, peasant farming was providing two-thirds of the island's food. And only using 25% of its arable land. Wow. So they're not even like, not every piece of land is even being used for that. That's crazy. Right. Yeah. They st- like I said, they still have state farms. They still have, you know, other forms, not just small farms like that. But they're being like really efficient with the land they use. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Another aspect of this that I liked was sort of that it has this, this effect of regular people's sort of participation, um, in like a democratic economy. Yeah, say more on that. Uh, one example is this mass organization called the National Association of Small Farmers, uh, which set up this grassroots thing called the Farmer to Farmer Agroecology Movement, which was all about like sharing knowledge and agricultural methods, you know, these sustainable ideas of how to like apply that based on what they were experiencing. So, Share ideas, share resources, spread methods to like prevent erosion, prevent landslides. Uh, That's a good example. But I think even just the structure of these 
uh, organoponicos of the cooperatives is also like a democratic, sort of a local democratic institution that has these grassroots things. It doesn't feel like it's really set up top down by the government. You know, so, well, the party decided we're going to have this here, so we're going to have this here. Yeah, it's just like, hey, a bunch of us decided to grow some food, and so we did that. (laughs) Yeah. And I, yeah, I like that, too, of the, like, sharing knowledge and stuff, like, because you presumably have some people who, like, did not know what they were doing. They just, like, did it because they had to. Mm -hmm. So I I like that idea of, of, it's almost like a union, but instead of, like, having to fight a boss, you're just, like, helping each other. (laughs) Yeah, you're fighting to survive. (laughs) Yeah. One example of an organoponico that they that I saw uh, written about in a couple sources, actually. One was this interview this person did. Uh, Tess McNamara did an interview of s- several people at several organoponicos. This one was at organoponico Vivero Alamar. And they're interviewing Miguel Salcines, uh, who is one of the farmers uh, on this organoponico. This is a 2018 article in Sage magazine. This one was in Old Havana uh, in the center of the Alamar Public Housing Project, which housed like 100,000 residents. It was built in the late 70s. The area that the Organoponico is in was going to be a hospital, but construction on that uh, halted with the fall of the Soviet Union. So they just kind of have this open land and they're like, what are we doing with this? Uh, and today it employs 180 farmers. There was also this article in the New Socialist uh, by Aidan Rackford in 2021, titled Agroecology and the Survival of, the Cub- of Cuban Socialism. Great article. I recommend it. It's linked in the show notes for you patrons. Awesome. They, they talked about this particular Organoponico 2 and kind of gave updated employment numbers from 150 before to 180. They share in the profits, like we said. They're doing things completely organic. Uh, they're creating their own compost. They're raising their own worms for like biopesticide stuff. And the interview with this guy was great. He had this, this passage in there. It says, as we walk the extents of the farm, Salcinas explains that he has learned in 20 years that intensive organic farming is all about the soil. Soil is your money, he says. At Alamar, they feed cows not for meat, but for compost, a far cry from the industrial feedlots of America. He also said, bugs, not chemicals, is another of Salcina's phrases, which explains the worms. His approach now is to, quote, complement the soil, not push it, and to, quote, renovate what is in the ground, not conserve it. Salcina speaks of reorienting himself to the world of microorganisms in the rust-red soil beneath our feet. That is so cool. Like, even when you're talking about like the tips that farmers share about erosion and things like that, like that is the stuff that we actively do not do in industrial agriculture, which is the majority of agriculture we have now in the States is like, they, you know, capitalists don't give a fuck if your soil gets eroded. Like they'll just go buy land somewhere else. Like they don't fucking care. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a death machine. It chews up, sucks up, uses up everything and moves on. Whereas this is a much more sustainable approach. It sounds like a lot of this was obviously, you know, necessity being the mother of invention here, you know, like, hey, we got to fucking switch gears and do this, which I think is interesting because the result of that, like you, the often 
like common narrative in socialist projects is like, well, people get really desperate to ramp up their production. So they heavily industrialize and do bad things for the environment where theirs was like, you know, while not initially like that and the environment was not the reason they started this program. Like maybe I thought it would be, it was because they had to. I I think you're right that they very much were forced into this situation, which sucked. I mean, materially for people, uh, but had the benefit of making sure the transformation was a complete one. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine a scenario where they are doing industrialized agriculture. The ground is gradually losing its fertility, gradually requiring more and more fertilizer and stuff. And some people are saying, let's start doing agroecology. Let's, you know, but some people saying, no, we don't need to, you're being alarmist, you know, and there's, there's this like kind of division or kind of slow Im- implementation of it. And it kind of drags on, you know, you can see how that could possibly be a, a result of that. Yeah. Or even like from a trade perspective, like that's how you get all these socialist projects being brought down by like shitty IMF loans and, you know, austerity measures and like just bad trade deals. Like they, they stuck to their guns of like, all right, we're not, we're not doing any of that. We're just doing it ourselves now. Yeah, it's gone. And part of that, honestly, was thanks to the U.S., thanks to their embargo. <laughs> Never thought I'd say this, but thanks, U.S. Good job. Actually not. I mean, it's, it's economic warfare. It's terrible, but... <laughs> it's still very bad. Sorry. You accidentally helped them out, sort of, <laughs> by causing immense pain, but they, they, they won up to you. And that's a big thing. A big part of it, too, is Cuba could have easily caved here and said, you know what? Like you said, we got to take out loans. We got to make some trade deals. We got to open up. We got to liberalize. We got to give in to capitalism a little bit to get by. But I think they've just had so long of a history of from day one, the U.S. coming in and, and backing up their opponents, trying to do a coup on them or an invasion on them, trying to assassinate their leader for decades. <laughs> that just wasn't an option. Right. They're not going to fucking give up to these guys. These assholes 90 miles away from them. I guess my original point, though, uh, Mm, (laughs) to get back to that. No, I I kind of rambled. So uh, going back, it sounds like the goal was production, uh, but the result was an environmental boon. I guess, do we have any information on like how their soil recovered from monoculture? Because like that is a devastating way to treat your soil. Good question. (laughs) Basically, there's studies that say that yeah obviously their their soil was was degraded before like 35% of their soil had some degree of of degradation in that regards the efforts have i, I don't think they had they, they're like um they haven't measured out how it's changed things yet but they kind of understand that it will uh, and are kind of pursuing it in that in that vein uh the cuban government for example is committed to the UN's uh, 2030 agenda and the sustainable development goals that it has, which part of that is combating desertification, restoring degraded land and soil, trying to achieve a land degradation neutral world. And part of Cuba's own law in 2019, they approved the National Land Degradation Neutrality Target Setting Program. Basically, 
doing like economic incentives for farmers, kind of like how we had the ministry, like, you know, giving them information and stuff, but also giving them like credits and, and stuff like that for their cooperatives when based on soil improvement and conservation. So like, I guess they're going to send people out to measure that and, oh well, shit, this is better. Okay. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Sorry. What was the, the time period of this? You said it was like late nineties, early two thousands. Late nineties is when, it, uh, sorry, mid, early nineties is when it starts. Special period kicks off 1991. And so 1994 is really when agroecology is full on the government's a hundred percent doing it in between there. It's like they're, they're rolling it out still. Yeah. I, I find that interesting also because I mean, that is a fair bit earlier than when organic produce like became mainstream in the United States. Yeah, that's, it's, it's cutting edge. And even here, you know, you talk about these UN programs and stuff, uh, the UN put together that sustainable Sustainable Development Goal in, in 2015. The Cuban government, since 2000, the Ministry of Agriculture has been developing the National Program for Soil Improvement and Conservation. So it's another one where they're like kind of already doing this stuff. They're already planning, uh, trying to combat climate change, trying to mitigate soil vulnerabilities as one of th- this article, part of it, puts it um not i wouldn't say they're like setting the bar for everyone or something but they are definitely like not just following a trend or trying to be cool exactly like you know in contrast with organic food in the united states which was largely done as a marketing ploy like Mm -hmm. we talked about how like it did have kind of some radical roots (laughs) roots Mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning Uh, but then you know it got co-opted by the industrial and capitalist food system and and it became like really just organic became a label you could put on things to charge more like it it didn't result in urban gardens gardens or neighborhood gardens of us having a more personal relationship with our food of eating more vegetables i would say it did not result in that either it didn't do any it definitely didn't help the environment like like it said it was going to so it is very telling that like you know you can only solve a problem so much under a certain system and like in this system where you know again i know we hammer this home all the time but it's like when the role of government or the role of society even like let's take the state out of it the role of society is to care for its people like things get radically better oh yeah that's the big difference you know uh we 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 basically to break it down like how could this happen in cuba it's that they went through the special period like they like we said they kind of had to they had to act fast and drastically but the reason they're able to succeed is because they'd planned for it ahead of time. They had something ready, not just like, oh, let's give in to the capitalists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, although we said they'd probably like try literally anything before that because uh, <laughs> <laughs> of that anti-imperialist like heart of their experience. Like you said, their goal is to make sure everyone like can survive and their institutions were set up to serve those goals. Like they're there. They, I mean, this is the idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat, right? People give communist shit and they say, Oh, that's, that's so stupid. Like who wants a dictatorship? Like that sounds awful. (laughs) 
And it's like, that's not what we mean. All we mean by that is like, let's have the government work for the people. Who's in charge? The people. Right? Yeah. That's what we're saying. That's it. And so when you have a government devoting its resources towards what the people need, even if it's unprofitable, you know, it's, it's an alternative to their current system, which worked fine at the time, you know, that allowed them to actually plan it out and then to, and then to implement it. It's able to continue it, you know, to continue it to this day again, because that government is still like looking out for people and saying, Hey, how do I look out for people? Well, part of that is, and the people demand it, is looking after the environment. Yeah, that's a thing that does not happen here. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it doesn't happen here. It's not, you know, we're, we're working with this archaic document called the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> I mean, like, absolutely ancient. Ratified in 1788. <laughs> Seems like it's going to have a lot to say about the current issues of the day. Yeah, I mean, it's been amended, but... Even so, its last amendment was like in the, in the 90s, which was actually just like a holdover amendment. Oh, like good. someone forgot about it, basically. <laughs> it was one of the original ones that was supposed to be kind of in the Bill of Rights package. Oh. But it wasn't ratified by enough states, and then people just forgot about it. <laughs> and this guy what at was UT it? was like, hey, there's this old uh, this student, like a sophomore student. Yeah. I was like, there's this old amendment kicking around. Maybe we should put it in. A secret amendment. Yeah. So they did that in um, 1992. Okay. What was the secret amendment? I bet it's some bullshit. Prohibits any law that increases or decreases the salary of members of Congress <laughs> from taking effect until after the next election of the House of Representatives. Okay. Basically, no funny. pay raises, no pay cuts. That would be pretty funny if you cut the pay like on your way out the door you're like all right these assholes they're getting paid zero <laughs> that'd be hilarious they should definitely do that but anyway uh, our last constitutional change in 1992 whereas the cubans are rocking their most recent constitution from 2019 wow wow imagine having a constitution that actually fucking applies to you and isn't just like a bunch of dead white guys who were slavers and rapists yelling at you yeah and their constitution has such things as the state having the obligation to protect the environment. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> okay, I have a weird question. All right. Has any project that you know of, and maybe you won't know this, have they tried just like straight up nationalizing, or I don't know what the right word is, but just providing food for free? Not, not as a universal policy. To anyone they've only done it on well I, i'm talking nation state wise i should be clear mm -hmm. it's possible that you saw some small scale implementation of that say in anarchist areas of the spanish civil war for example of course they still may have used some sort of tokens i mean you had anarchists with time tokens and stuff we've talked about that <laughs> oh yeah the time store uh yeah the time store I don't know how they ran things there specifically. And then, of course, your more utopian projects, sometimes those. But in terms of a nation, no one's ever done that. Uh, the nation projects that have happened have understood themselves, even though they're communist parties, you know, at the helm. They've understood themselves as like governing over a transitional stage of socialism. 
Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, it's just interesting to me that like often there will be nationalized uh, services provided at free or very little cost, which I think from what I recall, the Soviets did some of that like very like low cost for food and stuff like that. But I guess it's it's interesting to me that instead of being like, all right, well, you know, all public transport is free, like it's okay, all food is free, <laughs> you know, like, and, and then you get to the question of like, well, if public transport is free, then you have more people available to like, go work and like, go grow the food. So I don't know, I just I think it's interesting that like, such a basic human need, like literally, <laughs> you know, probably the number one <laughs> is still, you know, enforced via, you know, wages and, and payment. That's true. Um, there could be some element of like, because you did have social welfare programs. I mean, if people couldn't work or wouldn't work or whatever, you'd still have like provisions for them in the basic, in basic ways. But it is interesting. They're never just like, okay, here's the food. Yeah, it's never like the first thing somebody does. Maybe there's a notion that they still feel that, and this kind of does come down to a tenet of old school Marxism is he who will not work, will not eat. The first stage of socialism is from each according to their ability to each according to their contribution. Mm, yeah, yeah. So the idea of like, you still have to work for a meal. Yeah, everything else can be provided for you. But when it boils down to means of production and labor and that sort of stuff, well, we need labor. And you've got to participate in that to be seen as a functioning member of society. Nowadays, we might call that like kind of workerist or something, but I think that's maybe the governing approach. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, housing, it seems like, mm -hmm. is more readily provided. Like, like, it seems like most of the other utilities we think of as necessary are like, yeah, okay, like we'll give that either for free or a, like extremely subsidized cost. And, and food, yeah, again, it, it is subsidized. That, yeah. It's not like that never happens. It's just... Um, it's interesting to me that it's like rarely one of the straight up free things. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, you're right. I mean, to be fair, you'd probably have to do some sort of like ration card thing or something if you were going to do it. Yeah, I, maybe that's what it is, is like it's it's really hard to measure that into like, you know, like you can't just have a food bin, <laughs> you know, like food spoils. And so like you have to keep track of all that. You have to keep track of like variety. Like it's probably a real pain in the ass. <laughs> And yeah, I think that's a, another good point is the variety of it is that a house is a house is a house. I mean, like, yes, there is variety or whatever, but that's a real luxurious variety to have. You're, you're more concerned with, do I have enough room? Do my, does shit work? And that's about it. You know, style, let's wait till the and next And you can phase, kind of you know? it up yourself. <laughs> right. Whereas food, I mean, like, yeah. That's so personal. Yeah. People are picky. People have preferences, people have dietary needs and stuff, and it's easier than giving the ration book and, and whatever, just give essentially an allowance. I mean, your state job, like a lot of, some of those are, are basically that. And you also have just like social welfare provisions or whatever, and then just go buy it in the marketplace, you know, in the heavily subsidized and you can get what you, it's like, <laughs> it's just, it's getting a gift certificate for somebody instead of <laughs> an actual birthday gift. Yeah, I didn't want to figure out what to cook for you, so you figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, I think in a full, you know, 
utopian or full anarchist project, maybe that would be different. But I mean, we've, we've talked about that too with Kropotkin is that like people are very particular about food choices and you'd have to like, I think still have kitchens available for people to work in if they, if they wanted to make food for themselves and stuff like that. Like, and I don't know, we talk about this a lot, just, just as Mexicans, (laughs) how important (laughs) food is culturally that like, I would have trouble switching to, you know, the, the gruel, the gruel diet of like, this will get you nutrients, but you will be sad forever. Yeah, we would definitely miss all tacos. All, all the tacos and the guacamole. <laughs> oh, guys, we watched that episode this weekend. It killed us. Yeah. I suffered so much psychic damage. <laughs> so we really didn't get, I don't know, I feel like we didn't take as much offense as some people online have. <laughs> but it was just like to to me it was like i felt like i was patronizing them like looking at yes. them like oh like they don't even know this oh. <laughs> yeah it made me feel bad for them i was like god you guys can't get fucking avocados <laughs> like is that really what your life is like just avocado-less <laughs> yeah it's a mess. Uh, i'm very sorry to our british listeners i hope you get to experience an avocado soon you know, avocados are fine. I'm not the biggest. You know, I, I, I could live my the rest of my life without any other any more avocados. But that's crazy. Like salsa, tortillas, definitely not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have to have tortillas. Absolutely. Or as Hollywood calls them, tacos. He just calls them tacos. He uses them interchangeably. It makes no sense. And you're supposed to heat, apparently heat them up in the microwave or something. Like don't have char on them at all. Oh, that made me so mad. <laughs> Ugh, I wanted to burst through my television and correct them all. <laughs> uh, all right. I have a discussion prompt for you. Mm, okay. I, I wrote this question, but I, with the intention of just talking about it sort of thing. Not like, gotcha. did you get this quiz question? <laughs> you know? Okay, great. Do you think that you could do this, do agroecology in other countries, either within capitalism or maybe like a, a soft social democracy sort of thing? I don't think you can do it within capitalism. Like we've seen and talked about all the ways our food system is so linked to capitalism and to the plastics industry and to the oil industry. And just, I don't see it happening Mm -hmm. in, in a a pure capitalist state. Like it's just, there's no incentive. Right. It runs. I'm in agreement there. It runs counter to the profit motive. Like we're saying, you know, who's the government for, right? And it's in theirs, it's a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. So it's for the capitalists, you know, it's, they're not just going to do that. And sorry, you're going to have to take a little haircut on the profits. Like, no. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you could get just some small scale, like neighborhood garden level stuff of just like, what if there was this huge social movement where like everyone got rid of their lawns and turned them into gardens and like, fuck it. (laughs) But I mean, that's pretty crazy. But I think if they, yeah, if, if it got to that point, they would fight back with like zoning laws and stuff like that. Like, totally. They'd bring the state down. Throw the book at you. Yeah. But if it was just like an aesthetic choice, if it was just like, oh, here's venture capital firm A, who's going to come, you know, something with like four consonants consonants and a vowel or something. And they're going to come in and, uh, you know, revitalize neighborhoods or something with neighborhood farms i don't know if they were going to do something like gentrification but make it look like an organic farm i could see that yeah yeah but i mean like there's no incentive to do that like they're so efficient in their terms efficient 
with large scale industrial farming today that I just don't see them like that might be a cute PR project for like one place and that's it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they think that they're going to escape the ravages of climate change in the short term. In the long term, they don't even think they're going to die. So like, why would they be worried about <laughs> they have they're invincible, a complete distorted sense of reality. Yeah. Yeah. And then as far <laughs> as like democratic socialist states, I think it could do a little bit better. Like you could like get rid of those kinds of zoning laws and, you know, make it more accessible to people who want to do that uh, or like subsidize neighborhood gardens, stuff like that. But I mean, I don't think you'd ever get to like a significant chunk of your food being produced from that. Because Mm -hmm. like, if you think about, I'm thinking about it in terms of like current geopolitics of like which nations are kind of like that, like they import a large part of their food from like other places. So I think it'd be a real change in terms of, you know, reducing that need to import. And like, when you think about like, a lot of like the third world is where we're getting our food now, like more and more. So, I mean, that is tied up in imperialism and that, that ain't going to go away with just some cute sock damn stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Right. My thoughts exactly is that, you know, they'll pursue it in a limited sense, maybe Mm -hmm. again, basically to the extent that it's profitable, whether that's directly or whether it's like just to keep people happy, you know, like it's still profitable Mm -hmm. to do social welfare programs if it keeps your people from like thinking about revolution, you know? Yeah, exactly. That is a profit in its own way. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I think you might see like, you know, their version of Organo Panicos or whatever. I agree with you. They probably wouldn't take over the whole thing, produce enough to not have to import anything. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking like the Scandinavian countries, like you can't grow that much there. Like Mm, (laughs) it's all mountains and it's all cold. Maybe like mushrooms or something in caves. Yeah. I think they got some good foraging action, some good berries and stuff. You can build artificial caves, little mushroom huts or something. Ooh, yeah. Get Stardew in there. Mushrooms are Um, in now. So mushrooms are in everybody. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of my hobbies is telling Grady what, what a, Patterns that appear on clothing are in. And right now it's mushrooms. <laughs> All uh, the mushroom merch. But I definitely agree with you that like they're not going to get a, get rid of the engine that makes all of the lovely social benefits that social democratic states enjoy, which is the hyper-exploited periphery, like the global south, the plantation labor and outright slave labor that still goes on there. That's not going to go away just because wouldn't it be nice if we saved the planet? Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder too, like, I don't know a ton about Cuba's climate, so I might be totally wrong here, but I imagine, I mean, it's, it's fairly tropical, right? Or subtropical. I don't know. Yeah. 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 Biome that is, that's probably pretty good for growing. (laughs) It's pretty good for growing, but climate change is hitting them hard. Yeah. They, so they, they have, um, an increase in annual average temperature, decrease in cloud cover, stronger droughts. The country's climate will tend towards less precipitation and longer periods without rain. And by 2100, the availability of water potential could be reduced by more than 35%. Ugh. Okay, that's not great. In addition to more intense hurricanes that can dump the, a- the half of the average annual rainfall in 48 hours. Woof. 
Yeah, I mean, they got hit really hard by Ian lately. Mm, yeah. Uh, which was in the news briefly. They mm-hmm. had a couple of hundred people protesting in Havana and the cities and stuff about like not getting their power restored. Yeah, uh, yeah. I haven't seen anything since in the mainstream outlets, probably because there was no coup imminent happening after that. And so it was a boring story. Probably because they restored the fucking power. <laughs> well, they have it in, in, in everywhere. Yeah. There, there are still uh, a few thousand people, I think, without Oof. power that they're working to restore. But they do have generators out, uh, from my understanding, in most places. And they've been doing like these regular uh, public meetings where they just have the guy, like the uh, Miguel Diaz Canel, the chairman of the party, and the president, uh, and the uh, department guys, the ministers. And they mm-hmm. all go out there and they they tell you what they've done and they answer questions, basically. That's so cool. So they've been given these updates. And I was reading it in the, uh, the Granma, the, uh, the newspaper. They're named after the the ship that they came to start the revolution on. Ooh. Uh, and, um, and so, yeah, they, they have these, like, I think every week they have the update at the, at the national palace or whatever. Okay, cool. But yeah, it looks like they're making progress. It looks like they still have a ways to go, but kind of, they're working on it. You know, they're, they're, seems like they're doing the best they can. Yeah. I mean, again, when you have a fucking embargo from, a heavily industrialized nation. You, it's harder to get generator parts and like stuff. <laughs> yeah, electricity. You know, back up and running immediately after something so huge too. I mean, Florida got socked by that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, climate change is definitely hitting them hard, um, and will continue to do so. Yeah, I bet. Okay. Uh, weird question. So Cuba has been like opening more and more to tourists now. Is it, is it good to go there? <laughs> like, is that, is it, is that like ethically good? I don't know anything. <laughs> Man, I don't, I don't know either. I would say yes. Cause it's an actually existing social estate. Yeah. And like probably the U S doesn't want you to. Mm, then I'll do it. <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of good. It, I would love to, to see it and to, like, you know, see the museums and see the see Havana and see all the places, and it would be cool. Okay. Podcast field trip. <laughs> <laughs> Class trip. We go to Cuba. We try the produce, because I bet it's fucking good. Do an episode from Havana. Okay. Okay. And get our passports revoked as we're there. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> We okay. We just record it there. We don't release it till we're back. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a better idea. Don't have to do a live ep. Maybe we're not ready for that kind of heat. Which you've never done. We need practice for that first. Oh God, no. We we. Do you know how many coughs I'm going to have to edit out of just this episode? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I have an itchy throat. No, it's not your fault. I. <laughs> we also just fuck up a lot. I have to re-say sentences. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We sound great thanks to their editing, but mm-hmm. we are a little more unpolished if you heard us firsthand. Yeah. Yeah, right. Like I tell people like anyone can do a podcast. Like I kind of have marble mouth where I just I regularly stumble over regular ass sentences. And I still have a podcast like you just you have to edit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Just know how to go back and take things. Yep. Always try again. All right. Well, are we good to leave it there? I think so. Um, I think overall, one thing to take away from this might be that, uh, I don't know. I don't think this is a one-off thing. I don't think this is just like, wow, isn't that weird? Cuba did this thing. Like, (laughs) you know, our future communist, anarchist, socialist projects should probably keep the principles of agroecology in mind when deciding how to produce for ourselves, you know? Definitely. Like, we're going to be cut off from industrial practices, probably, um, unless you happen to take over a a fertilizer factory. (laughs) (laughs) And even if you did, like, like these are important things to think about. So, like, I, I think it's smart to... I think it's smart, and I think it's very telling, again, that, like, the system you know, necessitated this ecological change and that like good things can come out of that. And I'm I'm just, I'm very impressed with that. And I think it's really telling that like, Hey, one system causes like climate collapse and the other one, not so much. (laughs) Yeah. Climate restoration. Weird how that works. Crazy. Next week we are doing listener Q and a, uh, we'll probably be tackling our questions from the backlog as usual, but go ahead and send in questions for next time. Uh, we try to do them like once a season, once a quarter, I guess, if you want to be businessy I about don't. it. No, man, I'm, I'm pretty good with season. <laughs> Let's go season. That's much more fun. And we will also be checking in on our community action item. I'm going to brag and say I've already done mine. Grady has not. Wow. All right. I was going to leave it up to the viewer's imagination or the listener's imagination. But I guess they know us. They know our tendencies. Dude, I had these notes done like today during the day, not like right before the show. Okay. Wow. That's your brag that you were a few hours early? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A few hours early. You stress me out. You give me secondhand stress. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Dude, I keep seeing TikToks that are like, the real reason you procrastinate and stuff. I'm like, do y'all know that I'm on TikTok to procrastinate? Is that why you're sending me this? <laughs> it's just like the TikTok logo. Like it just ends and shows the TikTok <laughs> logo like it does. That's yeah. the real reason. We did it. <laughs> we found it. Oh my gosh. Anyway, so yeah, we'll be talking about our action item that we did. So listeners, if you did something good for your community lately, um, we want to know about that. Send that in and we'll maybe read it on the show. Yeah, that sounds uh, kind of cool, actually. So do that. Please do. All right, cool. I think that's it. All right. I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to 
local mutual aid in the DFW area. So ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Tee Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes. So check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.